Good morning. I had some uh, painful reminders as I was um, sitting through the service. Uh, one was how difficult it is to give a sermon or presentation after Mark Johnson's given a children's story. It's sort of all downhill after that. But just when I thought that was the worst thing that could happen to me, I heard these wonderful musicians. Wasn't that fantastic? So it's really going downhill after that. So. <clears throat> um, I'm going to have to retrain myself a little bit this morning as uh, we spend this time together. Um, as I have to confess that my audiences that I'm been trained to speak to for the last 20 years are not Adventist congregations. They're really other than Adventist individuals. And uh, if I could encourage one thing uh, out of this time this morning, it would be to stop calling them non-Adventists. <laughs> they, are, they are not nons or nots. They're other than Adventist Christians or believers or others. So I'm going to have to retrain myself a little bit this morning to speak to my own faith community. Um, so you heard the scripture reading this morning. Um, I'd like to um, engage you a little bit in some reflection this morning and move from a millennium before the time of Christ uh, into the current social and cultural environment we find ourselves today. So you heard the scripture reading, which comes from 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, we've just selected a few verses, actually, out of that passage. I'm going to make a much wider uh, <clears throat> allusion to what's happening in that passage. The time period of this passage is about... 1,050 years before the time of Christ, a millennium before the time of Christ. And to, and to kind of make the story come alive this morning, or at least uh, fit into our context today, I need to talk about four elements of it. The first is the ascension of the prophet Samuel. Uh, so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. I am going to talk to you about the Philistines as well. Uh, by the way, how many of you noticed that the Philistines made the headlines this week? No one? Okay, they did. <clears throat> then I want to talk to you a little bit about the religious culture uh, that was part of the nation of Israel. And the most boring part for everyone except Gordy Gates is going to be the geopolitics of Israel at this time and how familiar that's going to feel to you today. So, let's start with, uh, with the prophet Samuel. If you noticed as you were reading the passage, his name is not mentioned in that passage. Uh, probably for a very good reason. But the three chapters just before the fourth chapter of Samuel 
is all about his ascension as a spiritual leader in Israel. And um, how many of you, I wonder, grew up reading the Bible storybooks? I, I, there's still a few. I don't know if people do that anymore. Read those. Uh, Uncle Arthur, wasn't he the author? Then maybe we have a more modern version of that. But uh, one of the stories that you read, if you read those Bible storybooks or, or lived in an era where we used to do that, was the story of Samuel. And it's a very well-known story. Uh, we use it as a children's story more than anything else today. But uh, uh, Samuel's parents, before he was born, was a man named Elkanah, and his wife was Hannah. And uh, Elkanah had two wives, and his other wife, Penaniah, constantly harassed his younger wife, Hannah, because she could not have children. So Hannah went up to the spiritual center of Israel, which was a, a town high in the mountains uh, called Shiloh, where the prophet Eli, or the high priest Eli, served and his two sons. And she, he noticed that she was crying. And uh, so Eli approached her and asked her why she was crying, and she said that she was barren, she could not have children, and she was being ridiculed. So Eli said, well, I give you God's blessing, go home, and she did, and she immediately became pregnant. Uh, her child, she named Samuel, and uh, instead of raising him, she raised him for a short period of time, and then she took him back up to Shiloh, where Eli was, and she gave him to the high priest Eli and said, I want you to raise him as a priest in Israel. So I'm giving you my child uh, that was given to me by you, and I want him to be a, a religious leader in Israel. So that's the story that actually comes just before what we read. The other part of the story is that there was an existing spiritual leader in Israel at that time. His name was Eli. And he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And uh, they were a huge disappointment to the people in Israel. Um, you can read about uh, their experience, and I will uh, take you on a journey with that just briefly, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were scoundrels. I'm reading from the, uh, <laughs> the modern language translation here, so you have to kind of follow me with this. <clears throat> for their duties, they had no respect for the Lord or for the duties as priests. Whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, Eli's son would send over a servant with a prefong fork and take their food. And the story goes on to describe um, that basically they were using their religious position for financial gain. So their faith experience or the culture of Israel that they were building was really about their own benefit. How can we benefit financially in this situation? So, um, so when Samuel arrives in Eli's home, he is quite a significant contrast to the sons of Eli. And if you follow the story, and we won't go into depth about it, um, 
Eli comes to learn that Samuel is going to ascend as the spiritual leader of Israel, which happens later in our story this morning. So Samuel, during this time period that you just read about, um, is just still an apprentice, but his fame is spreading throughout Israel as a person who wants to serve the people and not themselves with their faith, with their religion. So Israel, as you see here in this story, uh, decides they want to battle the Philistines. And they head out to a, uh, they head out to a town called Aphek. And uh, they, settle, they settle in a town that we really still don't know exactly where this place was. It's called Ebenezer in the Bible. I don't know, Gertie, you probably had breakfast there or something when you were out there sometime. <clears throat> and uh, they've come to do battle with the Philistines. Now, the Philistines, the second part of this story, <laughs> made news this week. I actually brought the uh, article with me from The Guardian. And... Um, so I thought I'd just read a little part. Uh, they've just excavated out here where, uh, where the Philistines were, and I'll talk about that in a minute, in the boring part of the sermon that has the geopolitics in it. Uh, it says that um, academics studying the ruined Philistine city of Ashkelon in the last year have discovered that DNA evidence suggests the Philistines may have descended from ancient Greeks who never went home after the Trojan War. They were potters, architects, wide-ranging curious navigators, and world-leading smelters of metal. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> we tend to think of these, uh, of these group of people as sort of barbarians. Actually, they're way more technically involved than, than Israel is. They have cutting-edge weaponry. They have cutting-edge technology. They are a very evolved uh, culture that is not Arab, actually. Many times we look at this group and they think they were one of the tribes that were sitting there uh, that had a long Aramean history. These people were Aegeans, they're Greeks. Uh, they actually arrived uh, in Palestine almost the same time that the Israelites did. So the same time that the Israelites were coming up for Egypt, the Philistines were moving into this area probably from Crete or Greece as a very highly technologically evolved people. One, now comes the boring part of the sermon, except for Gordy. <clears throat> the geopolitics of this region. So, uh, if you were to look at a map and look at Palestine in this time, you will see that the, the Philistines occupied this territory from about the Egyptian border, coming right up uh, short of... Um, Joppa, or where Tel Aviv is now in Israel. They were on the coast. So it's very 
very much like the territory that we know now as the Gaza Strip, uh, only larger. And they were uh, advanced uh, traders, seafarers, uh, very religious people. Uh, and Israel was right beside them inland from where they were. So you had the Philistines right here on the coast. And then you had the tribe of Judah right next to them occupying all the other land. And so they lived this parallel parallel geographic life right beside each other and here was the border dividing line right between them and so they had this long history of aggravation with each other um, it, you first read about it way back in the book of Judges actually a famous story of Samson who began wrestling with the Philistine culture early on Israel actually spent almost, from the time they arrived, 1200 BC, up to about this time, 150, 200 years they've been living in Palestine, right next to the Philistines. And they had occasional struggles with each other, but not open warfare, until 1 Samuel chapter three. <laughs> and then it's Israel who moves west to try to engage them in battle. The first real open warfare between the two tribes in 200 years. Now, I know we're tempted to think they were just fulfilling God's commission. God wanted Israel to occupy all this territory and that meant the Philistines had to go. Actually, the story is a little more complicated than that. Uh, because Israel did not attack them at the center of where they lived. This town of Aphek, where Gordy had breakfast or lunch, way up, is way up on the northern border of where the Philistines were, and um, quite distance from their main capital cities. And Israel attacked them in this area probably for geopolitical reasons. It wasn't to remove them as a people. This town where they attacked, Aphek, was the trading center of Palestine. And the Philistines controlled it. So this is how they gained most of their income, their money, and Israel was looking at this territory and instead of attacking them at the center to remove them from the land, they wanted this section of their territory at Aphek because it was to their economic benefit. And so the battle takes place and Israel loses. Uh, 4,000 men, according to the story. Well, uh, they went back then uh, and withdrew back to Ebenezer, even a little further, probably uh, towards Shiloh. And they got a great idea. They said, let's take what is most emblematic of our faith and our religion the Ark of the Covenant, and we'll march it out in front. <laughs> and 
God could not disappoint us. This is the, the center of our religious culture. We will win. And so they pulled the ark out from the town of Shiloh, where it had been for uh, several years. And they marched it out into the battle. And you saw the result in the story. They didn't lose 4,000 people. They lost 30,000. They lost the ark itself, was captured by the Philistines. Not only that, but their sacred town, the center of their faith, Shiloh, was also captured by the Philistines. It was a complete degradation of their faith. Now, the story goes on to tell us this interesting uh, after story of what happened because uh, when the Philistines captured the ark, they put it in one of their... The, Philistines were actually five cities, uh, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod, Eshkelon, and uh, Gath. And so they, they were this kind of coalition of city-states that kind of worked together. And so they brought the uh, ark back to one of their uh, centers of their cities, and it devastated their religious culture, their Idols fell down, and so they took it out of that city. They put another one, and catastrophe plagues hit them. And then they took it to one of their third cities, and that was a disaster. They were hit with more plagues. And finally, they said, what will we do with this Ark of the Covenant? It's destroying us. So they said, okay, we'll put it in a cart, and we'll take two cows that... Uh, have just given birth, and thank you. And we'll let it go and see where it goes. And if it goes back to Israel, then we'll know, you know, that's what should happen, and we won't be punished anymore. And they did. They, the cart goes back to a border town, uh, right on the border, and it stays there shortly, and then it moves to another town further in to the center of Israel called Kirath Jerim. And there it stays. Until the seventh chapter of Samuel, beginning in verse 1. And here is the completion of the story. So the men of Kirath-Jerim came to get the ark of the Lord. They took it to the hillside home of Abinadab and ordained Eliezer, his son, to be in charge of it. The ark remained in Kirath-Jerim for a long time, 20 years in all. Then Samuel, now Samuel comes into the story for the first time. We didn't hear anything about him. None of the religious leaders in Israel stepped up and said, don't take that ark and use it for your own gain. Samuel said, then Samuel said to the people of Israel, I'm sorry, because during this battle, uh, when the 30,000 people were lost, both of um, Eli's sons died. 
And when the message came back to Eli, he fell over and broke his neck, the story said, and he died. And so all of those religious leaders were gone. And Samuel ascends to be the spiritual leader. And this is his really first uh, time that he speaks to them. Then Samuel said to the people of Israel, if you are really serious about wanting to return to the Lord, get rid of your foreign gods, your images of Astareth, determine to obey only the Lord, then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israels got rid of their images of Baal and Astareth and worshiped only the Lord. Then Samuel told them, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah in a great ceremony, drew water from a well and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. It was at Mizpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. When the Philistine rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they mobilized their army and advanced. The Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching, for good reason. That was my commentary. Don't stop pleading with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines, they begged Samuel. <laughs> So Samuel took a, long, a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with them to the Lord for the help of Israel. And the Lord answered him. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day. And the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. The men of Israel chased them from Mizpah to a place called Bethkar. Samuel then placed a large stone, and he named it Ebenezer, the place where they were first defeated. So Israel has the ark back. <laughs> they have defeated the Philistines. They have a new leader, Samuel. And his, Israel begins to prosper like they never have before. What did they do wrong? Why were they defeated initially, pursuing the will of God, pursuing his mandate? Well, probably because they thought of their faith and their religion as it benefited them economically and politically. It seems in this story that God has an aversion to being used by people for their own benefit, for their own gain, for their own advantage. This story uh, captured my attention as we were going through our classes uh, after church service in our Connect group and we're reading through the Old Testament. I read this story and it reminded me all too closely of um, our era. So I'm going to make some social commentary now. And when I do that, I always run the risk that I'm going to offend someone, uh, which I probably will do. But let me start here by saying that 
The reason this passage impressed me is because I'm just reading all the news feeds of what's happening in our world today. Let me start with other than Christian faith tradition. About 15 years ago, um, prior to September uh, 11, um, an entire faith group has been sort of captured and weaponized. <laughs> and we suffered from that. And we've engaged that in battle. And that faith group has been really diminished in, in the world, in the larger worldview to a large extent because of the way people wanted to use that religion. Now, we're really good at uh, critiquing that. Who, who cannot look at that and not be devastated to see how people have taken a religion and used it that way? Uh, safer to do that when it's not a Christian one, right? However, we have our own history. Uh, you can start a long ways back, but you can start with the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition or even more importantly, in our own history, the Civil War, where we had um, a whole section of our country who wanted to keep the institution of slavery and argued it from the Bible. Now, did they read the Bible one day and say, slavery is really cool, we need to do that? Or was slavery an economic, <laughs> important economic structure of their society, and so they took their religion and got the ark right out front <laughs> and argued it? Well, I guess it's easy to be critical of that. Um, but look around today, please. And I invite you just to engage in some self-reflection as I work through this just a little bit. We have a very large faith group in the U.S. in which their religious institution has sheltered the abuse of children. Gotten a lot of press everywhere. And about the time you start to feel self-righteous about that, the Southern Baptists just learned that there are 400 cases of abuse in their own faith tradition around this in which people used their faith to hurt other people. In the U.S. today, we see the rise of the nuns. Now, those are not the religious order in the Catholic Church. The nuns are all of those individuals, mainly younger people under the age of 40, who want nothing to do with religious institutions. They may have a spirituality, personally, but they want nothing to do with religious institutions. When you ask them, they see how much hurt has been done. Even today, uh, two articles, uh, 
I mean, you must think all I do is read news articles. Two articles came out about what's happening in the evangelical church today, the conservative evangelical church, as they become more politicized and uh, how that is affecting their congregations. Uh, the Southern Baptist, the evangelical tradition is losing members for the first time. People are moving out because they think it's their perception that people are using religion for other purposes. They could be cultural, political, social. They get the ark and push it right out front. Now, about the time that <clears throat> I stop looking at other, other groups of people and start looking more closely at ourselves. One of the things that makes me proud of being a Seventh-day Adventist is that we don't easily get trapped <laughs> uh, by politicizing our faith. We have legislators who are one side of the political ideology and we have legislators that are on the other side. Being a Seventh-day Adventist doesn't dictate how you think about your political ideology. Now, we may argue among it amongst ourselves, but our faith tradition doesn't tell us how to use our religion in that way. But, let's talk about culture just a minute. Large parts of the world, culture dictates the role of women. And as Adventist church has expanded greatly in those countries, that cultural understanding of women and the role that they play has all of a sudden gotten into our theology. So as most people know in the Seventh-day Adventist church, we've had a lot of debate, a lot of conversation about the role of women. But... It's culture. People didn't open the Bible one day and say, here's the role that women should have. <laughs> Their culture shaped that view, and then they went to the Scripture. So we're not immune. We are engaged as a church in the same struggle of putting the ark right out front of what I think or what I want or what my ideology is or what my culture is. So I think this story helps us reflect on that. Now, let me just go down one more quick level. I think we're vulnerable to that as well, individually. I have a colleague, and, the, and uh, they were looking for a home. And so they went on Facebook, and they have like, 400,000 followers on Facebook. And they said, we found this home and we're praying that God will give us this home. And will you all pray with us that God gives us this home? And this went on day after day after day after day. And finally, they got the home. And they said, praise God. Our prayers were answered. We have our home. 
A friend of mine who uh, lost their 20-year-old child tragically in the night was also praying (laughs) for God's protection of their child. And they lost him. So, is God really into helping you get your house and not saving your son? Or how do we talk about our faith? You know, it's easy to get our own wants. Everything from praying, and I know I'll get in trouble for this, praying to help me find the keys that I lost to my car, and God, please don't misunderstand me, God endorses a culture of prayer in our life. But when we use it to solve all of our immediate problems, people look at us and they say, you got the ark right out front. I think what God really wants um, is um, an authentic Christian witness. Not a group of people who use God to somehow solve their problems, their wants, their desires. Uh, He wants people who look at their life and look at God's will and says to themselves, how do I live authentically? (laughs) How How do I live in the midst of loss, How do I live in the midst of disappointment? How do I live in the midst of a lot of things that life will bring me? How does God call me to live authentically into that? Not to solve it for me, not to move away from it, but to embrace it with God's spirit and said, God, come into my life. And as Samuel tried to tell the Israelites, live authentically. Don't use God to solve every problem, every want, every crisis. Live authentically with God. Invite him into your life and let the world see we find God in the midst of what we are living through. Not moving around it, putting the ark out in front, or solving it. Thank you. I invite you uh, again for your own reflection about this. But the world is watching. Believe me, (laughs) I've talked to over 20,000 people who are not Seventh-day Adventists in the last years. They are watching us. And they see it when we put the ark out in front of us. They see it so clearly. And we have an opportunity as a Christian community to reflect on this. How does the ark get out in front of my life? How do I want to use God or have God get me where I want to be, do what I want to do, instead of saying, God, let me be the person in the midst of my life. Give me the resources Thank you very much. Blessings on you. Hope I haven't offended you.